Okay, today I'm back in the Star Sports office at Mayfair with um, Luke Payton. Luke, thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us. Hi. Um, so you're a professional punter. Can yes. Tell us a bit about how you, what sort of professional punting you do. So these days I'm just doing golf in running. Um, in previous years, done a whole variety of things. So it really started off with pre-off golf, um, a lot of each way a lot of pre-off um, and it's evolved as time's gone on, particularly in golf, to in-running punting, done football, done NBA, done American football. So I've done lots of different sports over the years, but at the moment it's just golf. Okay, so would you would you be in the modelling bracket or a form judge? Uh, myself, I'm the form judge, but um, when I was doing golf, um, the each way stuff, that was with a very close friend who um, self-taught modeler, very good modeler, and you know we're placing a lot of bets on you know pre, you know pre-off golf um, each way, all based on models, and the same with there's some in-running stuff that was pre, you know models. There was the NBA in running was all models, um, so it's been a real mixture. So I've been lucky enough to see the sort of benefits of both both modeling and judge. You know both have their strengths and weaknesses. Okay, now I know it's. it's fairly different but a lot of horse racing pro punters say that they need to be able to accurately price up a race and then spot the value to get you know to, to keep in front i mean would you accurately price up a golfing tournament so yeah so i haven't had to act you know and i haven't had to price up a golf tournament for many years now um but back in the day obviously we were doing pre-off betting so you're pricing up the market you know finding edges placing bets accordingly nowadays the most interesting thing is is actually pricing up between, you know, after rounds three and four. Um, and sort of quite an interesting challenge for people is don't look at the market, um, see the leaderboards, have a go at pricing it up yourself, and you'll actually see quite quickly um, how good you can become at pricing up tournaments, you know, different situations, different players with different leads. And so constantly pricing up sort of round three, round four leaderboards. Um, but it, so you're not pricing up the whole field. Um, but you are, you know, you're, con you're know, constantly pricing up markets. Okay, now this is not what was on the list, but I was reading the book on the way up where the, the, the guy was talking about golf betting in running and knowing your players that choke. I mean, did like a, 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 an in-running horse racing player would know somebody's a short runner or flatters to deceive. I mean, do you have that sort of thing in your calculations? Um, yeah, so we're not talking in terms of... In, it's much harder to account for that type of stuff in terms of models, but that's where the sort of form judge aspect comes into it. I think as a general concept these days, far less players choke, per se. Um, and particularly, you end up seeing the young kids coming out of college, they're all ready to win now. They, they don't have to serve an apprenticeship as such, like they used to. Um, they're all, they all come all guns blazing straight out of college and they can win straight away. So it is a factor you've placed into it. I think it's probably overrated as a general concept. Um, but it's just one of the factors you know, when you're a form judge, it's hard to actually model. Okay, and is, is there any form for the, that co that sort of breed coming out of college? Would there be college form? So you have things like the amateur, world amateur rankings and things like that. And so, you know, <clears throat> what you've seen recently, you saw a little batch. You had um, Matt Wolf, you had Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, all coming out of university at the same time. And, you know, you can see the world rankings that, you know, these guys are pretty special and, as it's transpired, you know, you've got major winners amongst them, all one tour events, you know, a pretty special breed and probably the best set, you know, trio of youngsters to come out of 
um, college for a long, long time. Uh, but you could see it was coming. You know, there was no surprise in what they did, to be honest. Okay, now there's one of the things, I mean, as you can probably tell by questions already, I'm a bit of a novice when it comes to, to golf betting. But one thing you do notice about golf betting, there's a massive variety of places, place terms that each of the firms offer. I mean, up to 12 places sometimes. So is there, what a number of places tips the balance into the pundits' <coughs> favour? Okay, so in terms of place markets, there's been a lot of chat on Twitter recently about it. It all comes down to pure maths. Um, so Patrick Veach's interviews recently, he answered it very eloquently actually on his first question and answer session um, in terms of actually going through the maths of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a situation at the moment where, because I'm not doing pre-off betting, I'm not doing each way betting because I can't get on, that I don't need to spend the time looking at it. So what's changed in the last six, seven years is the companies only went first eight, nine, ten places for big events like the US Masters, whereas they're doing it every week now. And as a general rule, the bookmakers don't change things unless it benefits them. Um, and yeah, it just, you know, there used to be a situation with the US Masters where, you know, there used to be tremendous value in the top eight, top ten markets. So if you work on the basis of the winner market to 100%, anything under 100%, uh, the market's broke and you know you could back every selection to make a profit so what you were finding with the US Masters in the top eight top ten markets was that you know if you use 800% as the benchmark for the top eight is some of these markets were coming in at 720 700% so you know there were lost leading products for the bookmakers but since the bookmakers are doing it every week now is a lot of that value has gone okay now I'm going back to your your past, uh, you tell me that in 2002-2003, your first foray into professional betting was a uh, golf tipping line called Help Me Bet. <laughs> um, so after, so the university sort of met some friends, some of them big punters, some of them had their own tipping lines, horse racing, you know, you know, they really could talk a good game. I remember a friend had a, a tennis tipping line, he made fortunes from it, and but at the time, golf was what I was interested in, what I was passionate about, is what I spent all my time looking at, and it sort of naturally evolved from university, so at home for a little while, and then moved to Dundee to live with a friend for a few months, and Help Me Bet was part of that journey. And it was interesting because it actually helps teach you um, about running a business in a small, on a, on a much smaller level, but there's lots of aspects to, you know, like a little business, and it was good fun. Um, but yeah, that was what I did, and I still to this day love the name. Um, but yeah, it's, it feels a long time ago now. Did your followers make money? Yeah, they actually did. They did pretty well. I remember one weekend um, we had a, I think Paul McGinley won at fifty to one in Wales, and Kenny Perry won at twenty-five to one. I think it was um, the Buick. Um, so there were plenty of winners along the way. Um, it just got to a stage. The reason I stopped doing it was because. I I was doing other things in terms of, you know, I ended up joining Betfair and, you know, I wasn't allowed, to, as part of joining Betfair was, I wasn't allowed to keep doing what I was doing. Okay, so your first four reigns of professional punting didn't go badly, but you decided to take a job. No, I would I would say it did end badly because um, I, th I think what people don't really, so I, I think I was incredibly naive um, about what was involved and, you know, you move to a different city, you, you only know the people you're sort of living with. You know, this game's a pretty lonely 
lonely game. Um, you're not meeting many people. And I, rem I distinctly remember going on tilt. Um, and it's funny because looking back on it now, I, I remember which golf tournament it was. It was Scandinavian Masters. And for whatever reason, um, Nicholas Fast not winning. He ended up he ended up fourth or fifth in the end. And I and I <laughs> I remember you know doing my pretty much my entire bankroll over the next three days betting and stuff that had nothing to do with golf. And it was it was a real eye eye opener to me. And and I I'm, I probably have a lot more sympathy for people in terms of responsible gambling than a lot of people have in the industry. You know I know from experience that it's very easy to very quickly lose large sums of money and you know you're there three four days later going what have I done um, you know just poor decisions and and like anything in life if it doesn't break you it makes you stronger and being able to come back to that at a later date but it was a trigger point for me going I need to get out of this situation go and get a job join Betfair Okay, so in 2004 you joined Betfair, so uh, tell us a bit about what you did there. So joined uh, Market Operations Golf Team, um, so what Market Operations do is they're responsible for all the exchange markets that you see on site. Um, the team we were in um, did other sports, um, like US sports and politics and special bets and, you know, essentially there was a soccer team, there was a horse racing team and then there was, you know, other sports other sports, or general sports as it was called at the time, was split into two, and it later merged into one. And as time went on, is became manager of that team um, before I left, just over 10 years ago now. Okay, so that was fairly early in Betfair's history. So, I mean, the horse racing would have been colossal at that time, but what was it like in your, your area? So it was, it, was, it, was, it was some pretty amazing days when, so you see, um, it always used to be fascinating for the majors when you're seeing the amounts that were being matched, and, you know, it'd be like, oh, this week, you know, there was a twenty million pound. You know, twenty million was matched on this, or fifty million was on this, and there were some enormous tennis matches. Some of the, you know, where similar things were happening. So crazy money was being matched. And as a new company, it was you know, it was it was it was a very fun place to work. You know, everyone in certainly in market ops was young, intelligent, loved the sport. Um, as time went on, business changed significantly. Okay. Um, so would you have had your card marked? I mean, you see, did you see accounts that used to win on a regular basis and start to follow them in? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, no, no. So that's one thing people don't realise is that certainly within, say, operations is everything's permissioned. And, you know, we, we even if you we were investigating bets because there'd been an issue, we wouldn't see who the accounts would belong, you know, belong to. They would just appear as a six, seven-digit number. Um, and... You know, that's not the same for other parts of the business. So I always remember hearing some good stories from Telbet where, you know, big punters were phoning them up to place bets over the phone. And it's the same with any sort of bookmaking team in any business where, you know, they get to see what bets are actually coming through real time. But we didn't see anything. Um, so we didn't get the bonus of that at all. Okay, so did your experience, so what, for nearly 10 years in the industry on the other side of the fence, help you see gaps for a pro punter to exploit? Not really. I think I think the most important thing, because we didn't see any strategies or anything like that, I think the most important thing that we saw, uh, not we saw, but the most important thing for me was that is the relationships you built with the people you work with. So an awful lot of, you know, I can think of at least six, seven guys who've left market ops who have gone on 
on a, you know, working for syndicates, owning syndicates, lots of different types of roles within the industry have been very, very successful. And a lot of the time it's more about the relationships you have with them rather than learning something specific that sort of helped you in terms of um, some winning strategy. I mean, obviously you learn a few technical things in terms of you understand the things to look for, so it might be in terms of rules or time delays and all these sorts of things. But as, as a general rule, you know, we didn't we didn't see anything that you know really helped in that respect. Okay, so the the, the guys that moved on were just naturally clever guys anyway. So they they sort of had an aptitude for it and they moved on and. A lot of them, yeah. I mean, a lot of you know, it was it was interesting in the early stages of Betfair because. MarketOps had this terrible reputation, oh, monkeys pressing buttons and, you know, this sort of stuff. And there's some pretty high-profile media personalities now who, you know, were incredibly disparaging. You can, you can tell us who they were if you want. Uh, no need. They know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that many of them. Um, you know, so they were used to be incredibly disparaging and patronising towards MarketOps. And, you know, I know a lot of people who have gone on for MarketOps and had a, a lot more success than a lot of the people who were in prominent positions within Betfair. So it's interesting. Okay, so in 2012, you became a pro punter. What, was there a, a eureka moment where you thought, right? No, no, so what, so what happened was I left, so that's when I left Betfair. So that's when I really became full-time. Um, so I've been at Betfair for eight and a half years. And what happened is um, a couple of years before, I can't remember exactly when it was, but Breon came into the business. One of his big, you know, a huge emphasis on cost saving, and you know they were moving operation teams from Hammersmith to Stevenage, um, really for cost saving purposes. And so I said earlier, there's the three teams. So soccer was based in um, Stevenage, and they wanted to get the other operations teams down to, you know, out of Hammersmith, expensive office by the waterfront into, you know, into Stevenage, and along the way. You know, I was a casualty, should we say? Um, but it, you know, that's what happens in life, and it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Okay, then uh, in, look. In 2012, you already said you became a pro punter, and you told me it was mainly golf, but you did some football, cricket, NFL, NBA. So, uh, why did you start with the, those those sports? Was this because <coughs> what you used to? Well, golf golf was what you know sort of specialised in most and I was doing it with a friend who um big modeler and it was it was the sport that made most sense and you know we were able to put you know pretty large volumes through whether it be in shops whether it be online um you know a lot of each way um and so that that was the, the main sort of focus at the time it was then sort of progressed um probably 2014 we were doing some football um, so you used to find that, particularly early in the week, there was quite a lot of soft pricing associated with football. So you'd come to a shop and the coupons wouldn't be updated relative to online. Um, the biggest problem with football was you could get some soft prices, but you'd churn through accounts like nobody's business. And so you're having to weigh up the ba you know, balance between keeping accounts and betting football. I mean, I'll give you one quite interesting story um, regarding football. So 2014 World Cup, Bet365 at the time had a promotion um, which on the World Cup where if your team lost on penalties, 
they would refund your bets. And normally with these promotions, you might be allowed £100 on, you might be allowed £50 on. And on this promotion, there's no limit to it. So we ended up having 15,000 each way on Argentina at four to one. So that, you know, they, in the semi-finals, they beat Netherlands on penalties. So when it went to penalties, we weren't too concerned because we knew worst case, you get stake back. So the interesting part of the story more is that in the final, they played Germany who had just beaten um, Brazil absolutely hammered them in the semi-final um, but my wife is German Canadian so she's obviously a big fan of Germany so we're sat there in the bar um, quite a few friends on you know watching the final and she's obviously cheering on Germany and you know we're all cheering on Argentina and obviously you know she's like oh can all we're very excited about Germany winning in extra time and they're going oh probably you know 75,000 reasons you didn't want that to happen but you know it's just it's one of the problems you have with betting at times is that um, you have to make sure you're trying to avoid putting yourself into those sorts of positions but that was so that was football and then um, things like NBA we decided using models to give NBA and running a go some horrendous um, working hours people don't realize that you know, some of these sports, you have to give them a go because if you can make them successful, the upside is so big. So sometimes you're not sure whether you can make them pay, but you have to give them a go. And the NBA was one of those, and we didn't make it pay. <laughs> and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, there's not much sleep going on and, and everything else. But that, that's just an example. Um, but yeah, so that's... Okay, now you've been for a decade quietly getting yourself a nice few quid but you've started um on twitter you've started a hundred day thread and then you've agreed to do this interview so obviously you've decided to stick your head above the parapet a bit why have you suddenly decided to do that now well i, I like to come out of the comfort zone occasionally but no um so there, there, there were actually sort of two or three triggers to it so one was i remember being in the car um on the way back from cheltenham races a couple of months ago and Brother's friend, who's a currency trader in the city, you know, he likes golf, but he's not, he's not a great golfer by any stretch of imagination. And he was telling me that, you know, he'd played this course and, you know, he'd played at the Wisley and um, Swinley Forest. You know, a couple of courses are quite tricky to get on. And he had a f friend who's a member at St. George's Hill. And he said, oh, you know, I'll be, hopefully I'll be playing Queenwood soon. Now, if you don't know, Queenwood's a very exclusive um, golf club very very difficult to get on and what it made me realize is that contacts in terms of doing some of the things you enjoy like playing golf you know you need to you put yourself out there a little bit more in terms of actually making some interesting contacts so that was the first part and it you know the whole process was sort of um has been some time in coming and the other part was i, I decided you know lockdown happened and i decided i would offer um so a large part of what I talk about on, on the um, Twitter thread are things like incentives. So one thing I wanted to do, uh, it was back end of last year now, was do a high profile weight loss bet with someone where every, you know, both parties would be gaining significantly from it. So it's not a traditional bet where if I achieve this, I win this. It would be a case of if both parties hit the sort of agreed weight loss that um, it effectively a push and no one wins, no one loses financially, but both parties would be 
beneficiary of having lost a significant amount of weight. And so I thought, oh, you know, someone's going to love to do this. But one of the provisions was that it was for an amount of money that made them uncomfortable, which was to really incentivize them to do it. So if I said to you, you know, for £100, would you do this? You might say, no, right? If I said £5,000, you might go, maybe, maybe not. Now, if I said 20% of your net worth, I might be beginning to garner your attention a little bit more. And so I think everyone has a point where their incentives line up with, you know, what's going on. And that was a situation with myself where I was happy because I know that pandemic's not been great in terms of things like health and and that sort of thing and you know I was conscious that I wanted to put this out there this weight loss bet and you know because I knew that it was probably going to be the most positive EV bet I've ever placed in terms of your future health and everything else and if you only have 47 Twitter followers at the time because you've used Twitter for 10 years and you um, very rarely actually post you suddenly realise that you don't actually have a platform. You have the best ideas in the world, but if you don't actually have a platform to tell people about things, it's very difficult. So it was something that's been in the back of my mind that I needed more of a platform for these sorts of things. And so, you know, that was another sort of trigger point. Um, and the final sort of point with regard to, to it was, you know, this is an industry that is pretty questionable morally. I think, in terms of um, if you're playing exchanges, you might play against syndicates, but ultimately, you know, you're winning money from, you know, less fortunate people, should we say, and, you know, if same with bookmakers, bookmakers are making their, you know, you might be making money off bookmakers, but bookmakers are making their money off, let's say, mugs, for want of a better phrase. So there's a lot of pretty questionable aspects to this industry, and I felt that if I could give something back, you know, albeit a small thing, then, you know, it could only be a good thing. So that's how it all sort of came about. Okay, no, I've trolled through. You, you're only about half, you're not even halfway through it yet, are you? I've trolled through Don't worry, I had, a, I had a friend who hadn't seen it before and he said he, he, he read them for over an hour. I was like, good, good sleeping material. Well, no, I've got, some good, I've got some questions which are hopefully quite good. So, now, um, you, say, you say you need, to, you, there is a need to be really clear about the scalability of any betting that you do. First of all, tell me what scalability is. And then can you explain why there's a real need for it? To be okay, so if, if you're going to be serious about betting, if you said to me, um, what market should I look at betting on if I want to have, you know, a go early on um, in my sort of betting career? You'd pick the smaller side markets where the syndicates aren't playing in them because they're not worth their while or they're sports where, you know, models haven't been produced or, you know, that type of stuff. So it might be like booking markets or you know, talking match bets in golf or any of these much smaller markets. Now, with special bets, let's say, for example, you have a great return on your investment. So say you can make 10% on every bet you place on certain markets, okay? And across a year, you've placed £100,000 worth of bets, you've got your 10% margin, your expected return, 10K. Now, the problem you have is when you're betting on the smaller markets is you'll lose accounts very quickly, um, and you get flagged up because these bets stand out quite significantly. And your future is pretty limited in terms of playing on those markets. So what you have to do is try and go to markets where your return on your investment will be a lot lower, 
but you can get much higher volume on. So let's say I have a 2% edge on a market, but I can get a million pounds on. Suddenly I'm making, you know, expected returns 20,000. So whilst, you know, a much lower return on investment, potentially making a lot more money. So if long-term, if you want to have a long-term future in the game, you have to be attacking markets where you can get the volume down. Right. So although you've, you've obviously you found the scalability on golf, are there any other sports you consider um, inefficient and scalability has not been tried on yet? Not that I'm willing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you pro punters are also secretive. No. Okay, <laughs> what, what part of the pro punting skill set is core to all the sports you've mentioned uh, to your success? So is there something about each sport that you can nail which means you'll be successful at all of them? It's a very simple thing. So is you have to find an edge. So... You know, you can have the best mentality in the world. You can have the best discipline. You can, you know, you can be great at getting bets on. You can be great in so many aspects of betting. But if you don't have an edge, it doesn't matter. So everything in betting is about finding an edge, whatever that edge is. And then you have to have the skill set of all the other things to then capitalize on that edge. But if you don't have an edge, you're not going to make money unless you're very lucky. Okay, now you've mentioned you, went in, you took a foray into pro punting in 2002, 2003, become a pro punter in 2012. So why did it take you a decade to um, have a go? I think I was burnt first time around. <laughs> you know, it's, I think there's quite a lot of scar tissue in terms of first time around. And, I, and, I, and then you're in a job, you're comfortable. And, you know, as time goes on, you gradually build up your betting again. As time goes on, you know, as you're earning more money and this sort of stuff. And it, it takes time. And sometimes you need... A push to really take the you know take another chance in terms of going for it and leaving Betfair was sort of being pushed into making some tough decisions and decision I made and I'm sort of happy with it. So okay, so were you a punter throughout your career at Betfair? Um, a good chunk of it. So there'd be times early on, particularly where I wouldn't be doing huge amounts, but there were certainly other times where you're doing you know plenty of punting. So when did you? Did you? I mean, you may not have even realised your mindset changed from being punter to professional. I think what you end up with is nothing can prepare you until you are actually doing it for a living and it's your sole income. So I saw Patrick talking the other day where he was saying the best piece of advice he'd give someone would be to make sure you have another job whilst you're doing it, you're learning the ropes. Um, getting the experience because once you do it full time and you, you don't have any other sources of income it's a hugely different type of pressure um, in terms of the sort of transition from you know a few bets here and there to being a pro punter I think you end up taking a lot less sort of for want of a better phrase sort of muggy type bets there's a lot of mug bets that bookmakers are, are quite happy for you to take and you end up of, you know, you, you learn to avoid those sorts of bets. Okay, so once you're locked into that professional punter mindset, can you adapt to any form, any form of winnable gambling if you put the work in? Um, I think you're in a situation now, 10 years down the line, where you have a much better skill set to be able to potentially do that. But coming back to what we were talking about earlier, where you have to be able to find an edge. So I used to love playing poker, 
poker's a very difficult, you know, area now to to get an edge because you have so many other things going on like collusion and lots of nefarious activities, certainly with poker, where it's pretty pretty difficult to get an edge. And you know, it doesn't matter how good you your skill set is, you know, you're unlikely to be able to beat it. And I think that. Yeah, I, I think it doesn't translate as easily as that. Ultimately, you know, whether it be poker, whether it be daily fantasy sports, it doesn't matter what it is, is you have to find an edge. And how you find that edge, it's, it's tough on other activities. It's not as simple as saying, I have this skill set, I can translate it from one area to another. It just doesn't, in my experience, certainly it doesn't work like that. It's just a perpetual edge-finding battle then, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's one way to describe it. <laughs> Okay, Luke, so you, you told us earlier that you got you had a, a very close friend that was a, a great modeler. You're the good form judge, so you're the dynamic duo and you've gone into Well he, he's a good he's a good form judge as well. Okay, um, but you've gone you've gone into the game in a very good position because you but you know you're both very good at you at um, picking go winners. Um, so why did you stop doing that? Couldn't get on. So um, so in terms of each you know, so I think I was having I was actually having a look back at the numbers um a few days ago and I think in 2014 2015 you know we'd have got seven figures on in shops and online accounts and it just got to a stage where it was becoming so difficult to actually get the the volumes on that you needed um that it just wasn't worth the hassle anymore um and you were finding yeah, it was just it was just impossible. It was far too much effort relative for the relative benefits of it. Okay, so I'm, I'm assuming that you got yourself a wage in mind. So I mean, have you did you have executive wages in mind, or did you have the minimum wage in mind when you decided that something was not worth doing anymore? Um, never really looked at it as wages. Um, so you look at it more in terms of, you know, you can work out. The expected value of every bet you place in, say, a shop. So, you know, if over time, say, we had a five percent edge on shop bets or each way betting, you know, you place a million pounds worth of bets, you know, you might have an edge of, you know, you might make fifty thousand from that. But when there's two of you, and you know, that doesn't pay the bills in terms of, you know, your expected value. The reality is, you have a few winners. You might make a lot more than that, particularly in a sport like golf. Um, you know, the edge might be ten thousand, ten uh, percent. But the reality is, is that. You know, going around shops with a lot of cash around London, not safe. And it comes a time and a point where you go, enough's enough. Let's have a look at something else in terms of how best to sort of attack the problem. And we're doing a lot of in-running stuff anyway. So it's more a case of shifting, you know, just not doing any pre-off stuff and doing, you know, all in-running stuff. Okay, now I've been lucky enough to interview a lot of guys like you, professional punters. They say, oh yeah, you know, you've got the value and you, you, where you spot the value. So how do you work out your estimated value? Very difficult. And um, I, I always think, it's you know, with models, actually you, you, you can get a good idea as to what you, you know, on each bet you place, you know, you, you think you might have this percent edge. 
the reality is on that basis, you're expecting your model to be perfect, and it's obviously not. So, so would your model say this player's 12 to 1 and you can get 16? Is that is it simple as that? Yeah, yeah. so it would generate prices and, you know, it might be making someone at, you know, say 13 and you can get 16. And, you know, as long as the margin's big enough, you'd be happy to take that, you know, that bet. Um, so, and the same sort of implies in in running is it's very difficult to get an accurate number as to what you think your edge is. But what you learn over time is you get, get a sort of a gut feel um, as to whether you have an edge or not. So ironically, we'll talk about MBA. If I go back to MBA, which we were talking about earlier, is what we were finding with MBA um, was we'd place bets and you'd have a position. And then, you know, when you're making adjustments at a time for timeouts and substitutions and foul trouble and all these other things and then the team you're against would go on a eight nil run ten nil run and you're there going oh, you know in a terrible position again and it happened time and time again and it gets to a stage where you think maybe i'm actually not being unlucky is there's more to this in terms of sort of the nuances than you actually appreciate and it's similar with golf in that in running is you you know you you get a feeling for the bets that you're placing whether you're getting good value or not okay so another thing um that you talked about in your hundred thing was you talk about court siding now we see it, most people saw the documentary with the guys doing it at the tennis just beating the, the fastest finger to beat the bookies so what what were you doing okay so some subtle differences between golf and tennis so when we were betting in running on golf one of the problems you have with golf as a sport to bet on is that the picture is incomplete as to in terms of what's actually happening, right? So with tennis, you have the court, you can see exactly what's happening at all times. There's nothing happening in the stands or elsewhere. You see everything that's happening in front of you. Problem with golf is you have a situation where you have players on different holes and you end up with a situation where you don't know at various times exactly what's happening. And if you're leaving large sums of money on site, is very liable for them to get swept. So in order to be able to actually place bets of sufficient size in running, is we decided we needed to have someone go into the events. So the other problem you had was on PGA Tour events, the TV delays maybe 45 seconds. And you also have the problem of shots are being queued up. So it's not like you're seeing that much, you know, you're not seeing anything real time, it's huge delays. Same was happening on the European tour in terms of the delays it may have been six, seven seconds, but still big enough that you're not happy leaving prices up on site. And so ended up sending people to events and um, it's expensive. People don't, you know, people, you know, it's not a case of, you only have to look at the golf markets to see that when something significant happens is the liquidity drops through the floor, you get huge spreads and there isn't some, um, Easy, you know, there isn't easy money just waiting to be picked off as would have been the case maybe 15 years ago. And um, so we decided that, you know, in order to combat that, we'd send people to events. And as I say, it's a very costly business. By the time you've paid for flights and hotels and tickets and, you know, you're paying for the software to be able to actually do the in-running stuff, you know, that was 20% of profits and then you've got premium charges and, and everything else. And so in many respects, it was almost a lost leader. Um, and you know you then had other issues like you have you know I remember missing an event because the person's flights got cancelled we had another situation where um, there were other people doing similar things at 
you know, I remember in Switzerland and the guy we had there got kicked out. Um, and they were very brave to get him kicked out because he's six foot nine and enormous. Um, and there was another tournament where my guy is saying to me, he goes, this is strange. This guy keeps, you know, he could see from previous events he'd been to other guys who were doing this. And he's like, this is strange. This guy's following me. I was like, and then every time this guy was near him, we were losing signal. And it ended up being sort of a cat and mouse where he was running away from this guy because I think this guy had almost jamming equipment in his on him, which was stopping our guy from actually sending any data. So, you know, you end up, there's a whole series of sort of complications to it. Um, you know, we had mistakes, you know, mistake, if you make mistakes, they end up getting really quite costly. Um, give you an example. So we had a guy in Italy, um, it must have been 2017, and there's two guys, you know, the final group are coming down 18, uh, they're both in a fairway. So it was Matt Wallace and Till Hatton, and the two guys were already in the clubhouse on minus 20. Hatton's on minus 20, Wallace was minus 19, I think it was. And they've hit the shots, and you know, the information I'm getting is that Hatton is in the, is in the front bunker. Um, I'm, you know, doing the maths in my head, you know, if it's a two-way playoff, they'll both be, you know, two on Betfair, three-way playoff, roughly there'll be three, four-way playoff, four, you know, and you obviously make adjustments from there. Um, but I'm like, oh, Hatton's in the front bunker. I'm able to lay, you know, if it's a three-way playoff because he makes par, he's not going to make a birdie out of the bunker. It's, you know, it's, it's hugely unlikely. And I was like, okay, so I'm happy, you know, I'm laying Hatton all day long at 2.4. You know, next thing I know is I've got minus 15 ground position on Hatton. Next thing I know is Matt Wallace is taking the bunker shot, not Hatton, because got the balls wrongly and so they're going oh and you know you you know you're desperately trying to hedge so you know got Hatton's liability down to about I don't know maybe 11k or something and so Hatton's got this putt to win the tournament it was about 18 feet you know which is about 17% chance of making so you're thinking oh, okay so you still 83% you know going for us and he duly rolls it in and, you, you know, you're stuck with 11 grand loss and, you know, wipes out a lot of the previous week's work. And it's, you know, there's nothing easy about events in terms of sending people to events. And what's actually good is since lockdown happened is IMG have, um, they do their own version of it now uh, through Bet365. And I know that I think William Hill are signing up for them soon as well. And, you know, they provide all the information that we used, you know, we used to do ourselves. And it's just a crazy situation where TV coverage and scoreboards and everything was so bad that we felt the only way we could actually trade the sport properly and running was by having people traipsing around the world. Mm. Must have been a terrible job for those folks. <laughs> they would still complain. <laughs> um, uh, you also say, be clear who you're up against. Now, that's, surely that's impossible when you're betting on the exchanges. Yes and no. Um, I think you need to understand how, say, syndicates work, and and I think with things like um, football, is you have to realise that you know the pricing is a lot softer early in the week, and 
as time goes on, as the syndicates get more involved, it ends up getting to a true price, you know, just before kickoff. And, you know, if you're playing earlier in the week, you have a much better chance than you do if you're placing bets a minute before kickoff. And so you don't know, per se, that you're up against syndicates, but you know that all the information that the syndicates have and all the data, all the models that they have, is that's all reflected in the current price. So whilst you don't know you're betting against syndicates, you're betting against the information that they've put into the market. Okay, now you've mentioned syndicates on several occasions. I mean, sounds a bit murky. I mean, how many syndicates are out there? I mean, it depends on different sports. So um, on golf, you had you know Mustard Bet, who were a bookmaker, um, but they originally grew from being a, a golf syndicate. Um, and then they went into, you know, I think one of the problems that a lot of syndicates actually have is getting the bets on that they need. So a lot of them have taken um, the opportunity to become almost bookmakers themselves because, you know, one way for them to get more money on is by taking bets from the general public. Um, you know, I, I know people who work at syndicates, um, you know, I, I don't want to be betting against syndicates, that's all I can say, is, you know, you have to pick and choose who you, you try and win money off. You know, that's not to say that they're unbeatable and they have their own weaknesses, but as a general rule, you want to avoid them. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, there's something else you mentioned, quick wins. It's quite interesting to me because, I mean, I follow tipsters. Um, do you think that people who follow tipsters actually want to know how that selection is picked or do they just want to win? I, I think, you know, as a society, people are obsessed with getting something for nothing or very cheaply. And um, if you have a tipster who's able to make you money, then great. But one of the problems I have with it is, you know, if tipster was so great, they would, you know, there's no getting away, they would be doing it themselves. Um, they wouldn't be, you know, they're not going to be selling the information if it's if it's that good. Um, and what you end up with is, you know, they may have an edge early on, but the reality is, is, you know, all that's happened is you've been told to back this horse, this horse, this horse, and then come the end of it, you don't actually have anything to show for it apart from the fact that you've probably lost money. You've not actually learned anything on the, in, you know, on the journey. And it's one thing I'm trying to get across to people is that, it's, you know, you may make some money, you may lose some money, but you're not improving your skill set and, and actually understanding of the industry so that at some stage you might be able to go and do that yourself. Okay, now you say that um, football and NFL are hard to beat. So if a sport's hard to beat, should you be laying it? No, 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 no. So in terms of being hard to beat is um, come off time. I think they're the most accurate sports. There's a very simple sort of correlation between um, how accurate a sport is and the amount of money that has been put into that sport in terms of resource development, modelling. So, And it sort of comes back to how much money is available for people to win. So the syndicates will go, right, football. We can get the most money on football. So we're going to spend the most money actually trying to beat football. And so what you end up with is that because so much money spent on trying to model football and make football as accurate as possible, because the winnings are, you know, are the greatest that actually come off time, they are probably the most efficient sports in terms of their pricing. And the same with NFL in America. And you're not, you can't benefit from you know, laying those prices per se, they're just, they're just very accurate in terms of where they end up settling. 
Okay, look, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to gonna have to be a little bit persistent here because I'm, you know, I've done so many of these popuns and it's guys like you. No, you don't tell us anything. You just tell us that you're really clever. So give us a give <laughs> us sure give us um give us a crumb about okay. finding an edge in golf. So Okay, let's if we talk about golf in running. Um I'm in, I'm lucky in I'm in a position where maybe the way my mind works um but I can m remember an inordinate amount of golf holes. So I can remember every hole at Augusta, Old Course, you know, uh, Scottsdale, you know, it's probably 20, 25 courses. I know exactly how they play, what's required. So um, if we take something like, uh, let's take Pebble Beach, for example. So I know that, you know, I know the tee shot, you're gonna hit three wood or a long iron off a tee shot, but you have to hit the fairway. If you don't hit the fairway, you can hit the green, but it's slightly tricky and there's a cost to missing the fairway. Approach shot, again, if you miss, so what you don't necessarily see on TV is that the slope, the green is actually sloping a lot from left to right. And so if you miss to the left in the rough, depending on where the pin is, it can actually be an incredibly difficult up and down. If you miss on the right, it's actually a much easier up and down because you're chipping back up the hill. Um, and so, you know, take the second hole, par five, Tee shot sets you up into the bunkers, reachable par five. Now, if you drive into the bunkers, so where it gets interesting, if you drive into the bunkers, you have to lay up at the bunkers. Um, and that decision or the, the outcome of having to lay up probably costs you somewhere between 0.3 and 0.5 shots. Um, that's just a, a very simple sort of calculation in terms of, you know, players who are able to go for the green and two relative to players who are having to you know, lay up and then hit their thirds onto the green. And so what you end up with in something like golf is that it's all these small little numbers that add up to sort of a bigger picture in terms of understanding what is really, um, what sort of challenges lie ahead for the players. So it might be a case of, you know, on the green at two, depending on where the flag is, if you miss left or long, it's very difficult up and down. Short's actually a really nice place to miss, very easy up and down for the pros. You know, you go to the third hole, you know, you're hitting a tee shot across the fairway. If you go too far into the bunkers, again, it's quite a tricky second. If you hit the fairway, it's, it's pretty easy. You know, there's a real cost associated with where you go on each particular shot. Um, so, you know, if you take the fourth, if you hit the, you know, you're sort of teeing up um, in between bunkers. If you hit the bunkers, again, it's, it becomes a really difficult second shot um, whereas if you're actually in the fairway, it becomes a much, much easier shot. And so you, what you're looking at is you sort of, you know, whole golf course, you know, I'm lucky I know whole golf courses of exactly where to, you know, fifth hole, you can't miss left if the pin's at the back. You know, it's an almost impossible up and down. So, you know, it might be worth a shot more than if you're actually on, on the right side. So you see on TV, you think, oh, you know, that's, you know, it doesn't look too bad. But the reality is, is when you actually know the course in the right amount of detail, you can actually begin to assign probabilities to each of the shots that the players face in terms of how difficult they are. Okay, now that, I'm gonna skip a question, I'm gonna to go to information asymmetry because that is exactly what you're talking about there, isn't it? Knowing no. more than other people. Okay, so for me, information asymmetry is slightly different. So for that, that's about just being able to, you know, a good judge in terms of 
you know, let's let's take football for example. If um, I, I, you know, I support Villa. If I watch them every week, I get to know how good they are as a team or otherwise. Everything is out in the public domain, so you can see the team. Same with the golf. Is everything you're not seeing? There's no information there that isn't available to everyone. Okay, so for me, the information symmetry comes from if someone gets the team news before it's publicly available and it used to happen, I think Liverpool had a leak at one point, um, that's, you know, if you, people are getting information that's not widely available to the general public, that's what I'm talking about in terms of information. You want the knowledge that you've gained for your own hard work and ability to recall it is... <laughs> it, it is, it. but I'm, I'm really talking, you know, so I'm really talking about stuff where it's not publicly available, that you, you can't get your hands on. Yeah. So. I mean, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Mr. Veach, okay? Because there is that elephant in the room when it comes to horse racing, and there's this aspect I don't think I'll ever understand where people landing, you know. And I know I've seen your tweets, which would suggest you disagree with the point I'm about to make, but um, is that gambles are, you know, landing a touch or landing a gamble is, you know, is a is a good thing. Um, I've got a very good friend who is like, oh, yeah, the bookie's taking a pace thing. And, you know, the problem I have with it is if, to land a gamble, you know, very often, you know, if it's the horse's first race and you know that it's flying at home and there's no publicly available information, that's fine. You know, you you buy a horse, you, you know, you get that right to know how it's performing at home, okay? What isn't right, in my opinion, is if you've had horses being... Oh, let's just run this one out round the back. You know, let's make sure we get the handicap mark to something appropriate, and all the knock-on consequences of that. So, in that race, there'll be backers and layers on Betfair and you know other punters who have been potentially affected by the way that horse has been run, and it was probably happened two or three times in terms of getting that the mark to where they want it, and it's happened in the actual race itself where. You know, Patrick was talking about hundreds to one, you know, shots and... and yeah, that was only at second run though, wasn't it? Exponential. Okay, but, the, but you know, I don't mind that yeah. in the same respect, but, you, you know, seeing, you see a ton of gambles where horses have, you know, suddenly improved 20, 20 pounds out of the handicap and you're there going, okay. The reality is with that, and where I hate it, is that you're glorifying cheating, right? Is those horses aren't being run on their merits and the people who really pay are those who don't have the knowledge or don't have access to the information and they get completely screwed over. You know, there's bets that they're placing that have no chance of winning or the chances of them winning are very different to what they you know, should be. So that's where I get a little bit sort of, I, I find it incredible that horse racing puts these people like Barney Curleys on the, on the pedestal that they do for effectively cheating within the game. Yeah, I think Patrick agreed with you, didn't he, though? He well, he changed, these days, he's, you know? he's changed his mind a little bit over the years, I think. Yeah. You know, it's fine when you, you know, I always talk in the threads about your sort of moral compass and stuff. It's fine when you're doing it, but, you know, when you're not doing it anymore, you, it's, you know, it's, you change your mind a little bit. You know, okay. I can, what I can respect about Barney Curley is how he pulls off the coup and unbelievable stories in terms of how you pull it off. But the bottom line is it's still cheating and you're cheating the general public. Okay, so the next thing, I, I must admit, I didn't understand the phrase. Can you explain to us, layman, what skin in the game is? Okay, so very simply is 
you know, we can be sat in the pub having a conversation about a sport and you'll have your opinion, I'll have my opinion. And there's often a very simple way to sort of settle the difference of opinions is we can have a bet, right? We can have skin in the game. And um, Taleb has a very interesting book where what he says is, unless you have, um, you, unless you experience the downside in real life, unless you then take the plaudits in real life when things are going well, you'll never actually understand what's happening in real life, right? So when it comes to things like tipsters, okay, I have huge issues with people who are tipping stuff where they don't have any bets themselves, right? They have no skin in the game, right? Um, I think morally, you know, if you're not willing to put money on something that you're asking, telling other people to bet on, it opens up a pretty significant can of worms. You know, I, I find morally it just doesn't, you know, doesn't sit well with me. Um, you know, there's a, a sort of couple other aspects to it. One is, you know, you get tips that goes, oh, I've made 300 points this year. Oh, I lost 200 last year and I made 300 this year. And, you know, and it, it ends up being some fantasy land of numbers that, are, you know, tend to be created to suit their ego. And, you know, if you don't experience the losses and actually go through what the people who are actually on the losing end of these things, is you have no idea what it's like to, you know, the pressures that you're under. You people might go chasing their losses, um, all this sort of stuff. It's very difficult. If you're not actually placing bets yourself to truly understand what people are going through. And the same applies with, you know, you may well be told how difficult it is to get bets on. You may be told it's difficult to get the prices. You'd be told it's difficult to keep bookmakers and accounts, you know, bookmaker accounts open. But unless you're actually going through the process yourself of trying to get bets on and everything that's involved, you have no idea what is actually being said in terms of, and that's, and that's really what I mean in terms of skin of the, in skin of the game. Because you also have, there's a more nefarious aspect to it where one of the sides of the business, I think, isn't talked about enough and is abhorrent, if, for want of a better phrase, is this idea that you have a lot of social media, and uh, not social media, you have a lot of media companies, so Racing Post, Sporting Life, and these are the companies who have affiliate deals with bookmakers where they're getting a percentage of a punter's losses. So they're in many ways incentivized for people to lose money because the more pe people lose money, the more that the companies are making. And so you end up with this very weird sort of conflict of interests. And quite frankly, if you don't have, you know, if you don't have skin in the game and you're not willing to back your own opinion, then don't be surprised if people question your incentives. Okay, so you've got skin in the game. How about staying in the game? <laughs> well, staying in the game, you know, it relates back to what I was talking earlier in terms of the experience I had when I left university and I was doing it myself, is that you have to make sure that during the bad times is you don't do anything silly, is, you know, you decrease stakes and you make sure that when the opportunities arise again is that you're properly banked role to take advantage of it. You have to be patient and it can be difficult, but if you keep placing, you know, oh, this is my, the rest of my bankroll on this final bet, you will eventually go bankrupt and you're not going to be able to place any more bets. Okay, so you've stayed in the game for 10 years, so you've obviously had the ability to adapt. How often have you had to adapt? So, I mean, 10 years. so I think if we look at just something like golf, um, so you're adapting from, 
you know, pre-off markets, each way betting, tournament match bets. So, I mean, I remember when I was first in this game in 2000, um, the match bets and things like that, they were so soft and so easy to beat. You know, I remember Simon Bold and Love Bet and Stan James and some of these, you know, Stan James obviously went on to become very good um, in running, but there were some very soft um, markets. And, and so you sort of, as time evolves, so you have things like match bets and you're doing pre-off, you're doing each way, and then you're just doing win-only bets. So what people don't realize with, say, win-only bets on the exchanges is that I ended up in a situation where um, we were able to get, on a European tour event, we were probably only able to win £20,000 on a player. On a PGA Tour, it was maybe 50000 and then in the majors, it was 500,000. And so what you ended up with is this real, really unbalanced sort of disconnect. And it got to a stage where, you know, every year was, it was either made or broken by how good, you know, the majors were. And you don't really want that. You want it to be a lot more balanced. And so, you know, if the liquidity is not there in those events, then you have to think about what else you're going to do. And so you're then adapting from win only and then, you're adapting to in running, then you're adapting to not just in running, you're sending people to events. And then in a situation now where, again, adapting again, because IMG have got this great feed where you know what's happening at any time and you're not having to send people to events. So you're constantly sort of adapting along the way to sort of stay in the game. Okay, Luke, now the, the people that are still watching this are the golf punters. <laughs> They're, they're the serious, they really want to know what's going on. So let's try not to be ambiguous. Um, what worked two years ago that doesn't work now? I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure it really changes as quickly as that. I, th I think the big difference with golf betting as a whole compared to two years ago, I think like the place markets, which we touched on earlier, I think there's been a, an explosion of um, Twitter accounts tipping stuff up on golf and it relates to daily fantasy sports as well as you know and what you end up with is so when first started in the game you used to be able to find little nuggets out here and there you know this player went to college here or you know this player's played this course a hundred times when you know people thinking he's only played it a couple of times with so many people focusing so much time on it now is those sorts of edges become increasingly difficult to actually find Okay, so how quickly can you spot something that you've got a nice few quid out of that was working, but it's starting to go a little bit sour? Um, it's very difficult because one of the problems you have is variance and luck. Honestly, a lot of the time, it's just you get a feel for when edges are waning. You know, you're getting your money in, and you know I touched on the NBA NBA earlier, where you begin to just you get that sinking feeling where you're going not again not again and you know you have to be I think one of the things is you have to be honest with yourself in terms of whether you are making it pay or you know just think oh I was unlucky you know that doesn't doesn't pay the bills okay so were there any instances you can think of where you didn't adapt quickly enough to something that was turning the wrong way well, I probably wish I'd stopped doing NBA before I did. But again... How long it, did you give that a go for? Most of us, best part of the season. So um, I think 
yeah, I think that, again, it's, it's just, it's a great example because it's rare that you actually get something that's so clear in your mind as to when it's not working. And we, you know, potentially we should have stopped it earlier, but on the flip side is you have to give it a bit of a chance because of variance and you have to, you know, maybe you are running just badly. You know, the upside with, if you get a, an MBA model in running that works great, then the upside is so big that you have to be willing to, you know, potentially push a little bit further than you might in another sport in terms of what you're willing to lose or otherwise. Mm. It's, it just comes across just a little bit surprised that somebody like yourself has been so successful would wave the white flag rather than say, right, we're going to crack this and knuckle down. Was it if, if, the, if the upside could be so big? I think, so, on a sport like golf... You know, I don't believe as many people out there between myself and the person I'm doing golf with who would know, you know, in terms of all the little nuances and, and all that sort of stuff, I don't believe that there's people out there who know more than what we do. You know, been doing it for 20 odd years and watching, you know, every event and, you know, you've seen it all, you know. And the problem with NBA is I'm not sure that we had a good enough understanding of some of those little nuances in terms of matchups and things like that, to, you know, in terms of, you know, floor spacing. And it's just very subtle little things that they weren't sports, I think, knew well enough in the same way we would know golf, where you have the confidence to sort of plough on regardless. OK, now, you talk about golf tipsters. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of them seem to be very good. Um, and they, you say they've been the bane of the pro punter's life because they're so successful. So they're giving people stuff for free that you've taken weeks or a lifetime to, to work out. But can a golf tipster maintain that success? So I wouldn't... Right, so I think I'd clarify. It's, it's not a case of them being so successful. So what's happened is um, what you have to picture with any, any betting market is look at it how it is from the bookmaker's point of view, right? So they have these sort of matrixes. Imagine an Excel spreadsheet where... They may say on the Thursday of the event that they're willing to lay £5,000 on a player. Right? On the Wednesday, they might be willing to lay £3,000. On the Tuesday, maybe £2,000. Monday, it might be 1000 And so they're willing to take a lot, and it's the same with football, and they're willing to take a lot less money earlier in the week. And what's ended up happening is the tipsters, in a battle to sort of fight against each other, is... Back in the day, you used to get your Jeremy Chapmans and Steve Palmers on a Wednesday who would do the Racing Post. And on a Wednesday, so if you look back at the matrix, they're going, you can get more money on before prices move and that sort of stuff on a Wednesday. And what's ended up happening is the tipsters, so they can try and secure better prices because there's more competition, there's so many other people doing it, they move from the Wednesday to the Tuesday and then, then move to the Monday. And so what ends up happening is they're tipping stuff up and someone like Ben Coley, who's very successful is he'll tip something up on a Monday and it takes less money than ever to see the price crash and so what you end up with is a situation where you have different tipsters all tipping different selections all you see is this you know a sea of prices crashing on odds checker nothing ever gets pushed back out and you know it really really impacts the sort of the, the markets so I'll, I'll tell you a story about Shabanka Sharma so because um, it involved Ben and it involved Monday evening. So this is a player I've known for a long time. There's this 
tournament in Malaysia, Maybank Malaysian Open, and I really, really liked his chances that week. Obviously, a lot was depending on what price he came in at um, relative to the field. And he opened up at 80s uh, with the books, and he was a little bit 85s on Betfair. And, you know, I'd had small, little amounts of money on him um, on the exchange and with a couple of bookies, you know, very small bets, trying to keep under the radar. And 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock on the Monday evening, Ben Coley's headline tip is Shubhankar Sharma. Hmm, not good, right? So the next thing you know is obviously price crashes everywhere. And so you're left with a situation where, what do you do? I can't go to shops, right? I'm running out of online accounts. And so I ended up sticking a bit up on Betfair for, to win a million. So it was about 14,000 pounds at 70s or 75s. I can't remember exactly what it was. And I felt I had no option. I wanted to get a decent bet on him. If it all got matched, so be it. I wasn't, you know, I was happy with the bet. And what I really wanted was people to talk about Oh, and actually hope that people would come into the market and potentially would lay some of the bet. You know, and it's funny because on Twitter at the time there was an exchange where people were talking about it and they didn't know I was behind it. And they were going, oh, you know, Ben, people are following you. They must really like your tips. And, you know, people following someone's tips don't stick 14 grand up on a 70 to one shot. Um, and then someone else is like, oh, a pro punter wouldn't bet like this. And, you know, and it ended up, you know, next thing I know, Steve Palmer on the Wednesday, he's tipped it up. It's his headline tip at 50 to 1. And, I mean, he ended up winning. Um, but it sort of really highlighted to me that the problem with tipsters is, you know, crashing any sort of value left, right and centre. And comes a time and a point where sometimes you have to do what may seem like crazy things in order to try and get on. And I think, um, I remember at Betfair when Harry Findlay, I can't remember the name of the dog, but there was a, I think it was, Wim, it was I think it was the, the Derby, and we are at work, and it was, it was on a Friday night, and suddenly half a million pounds has appeared on a dog. And we're all like going, you know, this is, this is strange, and the next thing you know is, that five hundred thousand is nine hundred thousand. So someone wants, you know, a nine hundred thousand pound bet on, you know, Harry Finley own dog. I wonder who it was, sort of thing. And you know, and I think he got a fair bit matched. And um, but it, it felt pretty similar to that in that sometimes you just have to, you know, stick a large chunk up and hope you get matched. Mm. So you talk. You say you've put fourteen grand up to win a million quid at seventy. That's with the fractions, isn't it? Um, so have you ever had a bet like that match? What would have been your biggest win? Uh, biggest win would have been Spieth, I think, in the 2015 US Masters. That was over about 225, something like that. And the biggest loss? Um, so I remember losing over 40 on the Open when Zach Johnson won. I remember having big, big bet on Dustin Johnson after round two. Ended up on Spieth and, uh, just, and then... I also remember losing 40 on Ricky Fowler, um, just a disastrous event in Arizona, uh, Scottsdale. Um, I had some beautiful positions on him and he had a five shot lead and you know, you're know feeling pretty comfortable. And then he was just short the 11th in two, par four, chips it into the water, 
which you know is one of the best chippers in the world. It's just unusual. And then, you know, there was a rules issue where he placed the ball in the bank. The ball trickled into the water, so he had another shot penalty. He ended up taking like a triple bogey. He then bogeyed the next. Brandon Grace, meanwhile, birdied a couple. And so positions flip-flopping everywhere just gets very ugly. And then, um, you know, ended up being on Grace rather than Fowler. And then Fowler came back and won anyway. So it was just a, it was an absolute disaster from start to finish, to be honest. It was just one of those events where there's not, there's not much you can do about it. Is You know, you're happy with the decisions you've made at various points. And sometimes lady luck isn't really smiling on you. What's your coping mechanism? Do you go out and get shit faced, or not really? I, I think it's tough. Not you know, my coping mechanism weirdly is actually writing down the results, bad results, as soon as possible, and then I can forget about them, and then you sort of try and move on and um, and just realise that this is a tough game. You know, you can have good breaks, bad breaks, and it's it's tough mentally. They've mentioned it's a tough game. You've been doing it for a decade. Like, are you confident you can remain a professional punter? Or do you even want to remain a professional punter? You got a, a figure you'd like to win and then retire to the beach or something? <laughs> no, I, I think um, I think what people don't realise is you have no idea what's round the corner with this game. So, uh, I mean, the poker guys saw it Black Friday where suddenly you know all the poker sites in America were frozen and funds seized and um, and one of the worries I have with a lot of the affordability stuff that's coming in at the moment is you've no idea really what lies around the corner in terms of where it's going long term. Um, I just don't know. I, th I think the one thing I'd always say about betting is if you have an edge, you have to try and smash it um, as aggressively as you can, as quickly as you can because you have no idea how long the edge will last for, and you have no idea as to whether things outside of your control will um, affect what you're doing. Okay, so do you, do you see your approach adapting in the next two or three years? I don't, I don't think much will change, if I'm honest, in the next couple of years. We'll just have to wait and see in terms of, you know, how P&L looks and, you know, whether you think your edge is getting eroded. I mean, what people have to understand is that this game is getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And is that a lot of, lot of competition, do you think? Is that the, in, in, you know, what you do? A lot well, of smart I, I, guys I, I, with, the, the, with the computers and... I think, you know, it's... So something like golf, stats become more and more prevalent. The more stats become prevalent is the, uh, the better that the sport can be modelled. And, you know, it's, it's, it gets tougher and tougher. You know, people are willing to throw money at trying to make money. Okay, so finally, I mean, you said you don't know what's around the corner. I mean, do you look onto an horizon of five years? Have you got any aims to where you'd like to be in five years? Well, time? look, if I'm still punting five years, I'll be happy because it, it means it's gone all right. But um, I, I think there, there's a bit of me that, you know, I, I talk about incentives and these sorts of things, and I think I'd love to do something about incentives and what incentivizes people to do, you know, make probably better decisions in life. And... I think at some point I'd love to, you know, do something relating to that. Either that or something within golf, because I just love playing golf. So, um, you know, if if I'm out of the betting industry, then I can live with that. You know, it's it's. I'm not sure it's quite the glamorous place that it used to be in terms of 
um, how it's perceived and everything else. But it's, you know, it's been a lot of fun and um, get to watch sport all day. What more can you ask for? <laughs> well, on that note, Luke Payton, thank you very much. No, thank you.